0: Life is a blank canvas and you paint your own story. I'm Lee Rogers and welcome to The Blank Canvas. I'm going to be chatting with the Trailblazers, artists, thought leaders, athletes, the entrepreneurs and creators. Incredible individuals who inspire us to live large. Trailblazer doesn't even begin to describe Lane Beachley. Hailing from Manly Beach in Sydney, Lane's the most successful female surfer in history. One of the pioneers of big wave toe-end surfing and holding the record for many years for riding the biggest wave ever surfed by a woman, 50 foot. As chairwoman of Surfing Australia and in many other administrative roles, she's championed women's surfing to the point where these days, the women's pro tour events are as well paid as the men's. And that's just for starters. As a competitor, she's got the eye of the tiger and a take-no-prisoner's attitude. However, outside competition, she's a warm-hearted and vivacious people person who loves to help others. We cover all sorts of topics, including her latest venture, Awake Academy. Growing up in Manly myself and a lifelong surfer, I've been really looking forward to this conversation. Please welcome to the Blank Canvas, Lane Beachley. Lane Beachley, good morning.
1: Morning, Lee. How are you?
0: I'm great. Well, actually, I've been better. I'm um, day four hotel quarantine in Sydney.
1: Why are you in hotel quarantine?
0: Well, um, I've been Victoria and I needed to get to Sydney for a variety of reasons and um, in particular, our daughters here. Uh So I'm going to live vicariously through you today because I imagine you've already been for a morning surf.
1: No, I have not been surfing. There's not much surf, but I have been for a walk. Which, are you allowed out?
0: No, no, I'm in in the room.
1: Oh, my goodness. This is ridiculous.
0: Yeah, it's it's a pretty surreal time, isn't
1: it? It is outrageous. It just doesn't make sense to me. Yeah,
0: yeah. Anyway, the good news is I'll be out in uh, 11 days and the first thing I'll do will be go for a surf.
1: Fair enough. Well, let me know where you go. I'll (laughs) drop in on you. (laughs) Uh,
0: Now, I'm going to have to exercise great discipline today that I don't just sort of be a frothing surfer and fan and want to ask about waves and your favourite breaks and other surfers and all of that. So, I just, you know, warn you, you can, you know, slap me around if I'm boring the audience that aren't surfers.
1: we can get that over with very quickly if
0: you'd like. Oh no it, it'll be an ongoing thing. <laughs>
1: right okay you're going to be a little frothing toehead.
0: <laughs> That's right. So look um, we've both been around a while. I, I grew up in Manly and you did too so we've got a lot of similar friends and we're lurking around Manly around the same time and you know I'm looking back and it was a very different picture surfing back then, wasn't it? It was kind of a lot more feral and aggressive and male-dominated back then, wasn't it, than it is now?
1: Yeah, nothing much has changed, quite honestly, especially at Manly. (laughs) It's still pretty male-dominated. Yes, you're right, it's not as feral. There's definitely a lot more women in the water. There's a lot more acceptance and patience and tolerance in the water. No grommets are getting tied up naked to poles for dropping in on others. You know, We can't really discipline the grommets (laughs) for not respecting etiquette. And, um, yeah, it's just more inclusive these days. So it's a, a lot more fun, shall we say, yeah. for everybody.
0: Yeah. Yeah, no, <laughs> I think you're right. I remember I had actually had my first wave at Manly as, you know, probably with a million other people, but my mm. first time standing up on a surfboard was a KFC Foamy in the corner at Manly. I think I was probably about eight mm. and sometime in the 70s. Mm. <laughs> and, um never forget that moment and that started a lifelong passion and um but talking of manly and and the people kind of how i remember it back then I remember i graduated to north stain and i was sort of surfing amongst the wind and sewerage board riders club sort of guys at the time and i was kind of thinking feeling pretty cool and then one day i hadn't learnt to duck dive yet and i've bailed out and my board has um, gone straight into barton lynch who was behind me and it's corked his thigh And he's just gone, he's wanted to kill me. Fortunately, he didn't. But um, (laughs) for those that don't know, Barton Lynch went on to win a world surf title and um, it was one of the prides of the the board riders club. So I thought I was going to get beaten up. So I I quickly graduated to Queenscliff, moved further north. (laughs) uh, Yeah, yeah, and hooked up with uh, Queenscliff board riders club and made some lifelong friends. Hello. Yeah, I'm just on a conference call. Can you call me in an hour and a half? No flu-like symptoms. I'm fit as a fiddle. Feeling great. Okay, bye. (laughs) Who is that? That's reception checking that I have no flu-like symptoms and that I'm feeling fine. There you go. That's not scary at all, is it? Brave new world, huh? yeah.
1: Yeah it's difficult to comprehend quite honestly and then when we look back on this period in a year's time I trust we're going to learn some really significant lessons around empathy and compassion and treating human beings as human beings as opposed to always like following rules that are just made up on the spot and implementing regulations that prevent people from caring for themselves and yeah you know I'm I'm torn by what's going on right now cuz I just don't quite get it because it's it's you know the the word What's the word they keep using is, um, um, come on, Lane, come on, brain, menopause brain. The word just disappears. It's out there somewhere. Let me get it. Come back. It's around here. Unprecedented. I unprecedented. knew it was there. Yeah. But it's unprecedented times and that we're relying on a bunch of conflicting knowledge and research and experience to determine how we respond to this just makes it really, really difficult and challenging to consume.
0: I totally agree. Anyway, let's have an evergreen podcast that people can enjoy for years to come.
1: Fuck that! Let's talk about (laughs) what's really going on, shall we?
0: (laughs) I gotta love that about you, Lane Beachley. (laughs) Calling a spade a spade, you always have, and that's one of the wonderful things about you. You've just continued to communicate, no matter what's happened. You just keep going. You keep communicating, and I think that's one of your greatest traits because you can't be stopped if you keep communicating.
1: And I feel that the most important way to communicate is just authentically, just communicate from your own position. I mean, the whole, when you go into discussions with people, it's all, the way that we communicate and the way that we share lessons and stories is all based on our own narrative through the lens which we've viewed life. So it's just a personal reflection of how we think and how we feel and it's our own beliefs and everything that's that's then portrayed. Um, so... Everything that I say and everything that you say and everything that the scientists say, it can't be taken as gospel. It's just personal accounts of the best knowledge that we have in this particular point in time. So, you know, don't take my word for it and certainly don't live your life the way that I live my life, (laughs) but you can learn from things if they resonate with you, but it all comes down to how you think and how you feel and what you know to be true for you as opposed to adopting someone else's truth and applying it as your own. That's what I feel.
0: I, com- I completely agree. Like, yeah, use it, apply it for yourself. If it works for you, then great, embrace it, but you'd be yeah. stupid just to take it on if it didn't indicate to you.
1: Hmm, 100%. And yeah. I, I mean, I feel like I learned a lot about that growing up, uh, especially in Manly, uh, where, you, you know, we've got the same faces in the same places. <laughs> you can go away for 10 years and come back and it's still there which yeah. is what I love about Manly. It's so familiar. It's comfortable. Uh, yeah. and, and even though, you know, the facade changes deep down, the soul of Manly never changes. So that's what I love about it. But the, the fact is that you're, you're constantly or I was constantly reminded to stay grounded and never forget where I came from and never forget who helped me to get where I have ultimately got to. Um, yep. But also just owning my own truth about what it took for me to do that and what it took for me to achieve what I've achieved and the, and the changes that I wanted to make and the vision that I had for the world or the vision I had for women surfing or the vision I had for myself and then me- remaining congruent with that. And, and I know that the biggest mistakes that I made throughout my life and my career was when I compromised my own values and, and you know, shied away from who I truly am.
0: Yeah. Losing sight of your own code of honour, huh? Yeah, yes.
1: beautifully put, exactly. Yeah. yeah.
0: Wow. Well, look, I mean, it's interesting. You touched on there um, some of the people that helped you along the way. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd like to go deeper into that and rather than, you know, do a chronological kind of version of your life, yeah. let's talk about some of the people that helped you and inspired you along the way and what you learnt from them. Um, I guess probably first up, probably your dad who took you to the beach and and gave you the opportunity to create in that environment. Is that right? Yes.
1: Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, if you want a chronological order of my life, just pick up my biography. Beneath the Waves, it's on my website. Uh, If you want to talk about the people who have made the most significant impact in my life, the um, logical start is my father. Um, You know, I was adopted into the Beechley family and um, he was, he still is a lover of the ocean and a lover of the beach and he introduced me to surfing as a four-year-old. My older brother, Jason, is also a surfer. So we were just the beach-loving family with the last name Beachley and I became a pro surfer or world champion surfer. Fortunate twist of fame. <laughs> so dad was my rock. He's my He was, you know, science has often shown that, well, has shown and proven that the for children to build resilience, they have to have one connection or one strong bond with a consistent um, parental Terminal figure in their parent, life. Yep. Yeah, and so my dad has been the one that's helped me build my resilience, and that's come from allowing me to fail safely. It's come from allowing me to explore the world. He certainly hasn't been a soccer dad. He never placed extraordinary or unrealistic expectations on me to achieve greatness or walk in his footsteps or do what he did. He gave me the opportunity to go and you know, do things that I love to do and the freedom to fail and the freedom to explore and the freedom to succeed and um, just knowing that he was always there was the comfort and the solace that I required. Now, as women, we really need to know that we've been heard. Men love to fix things and women just love to be listened to and felt um, and nurtured and uh and so i'd say dad's actions he never really nurtured me through his words but he certainly nurtured me through his actions and so that's something i'll always be very grateful for
0: that's beautiful yeah yeah good on your dad
1: yeah go dad <laughs>
0: <laughs> go dad that's that's awesome yeah I, some of my most vivid memories are with my dad um at the beach, like him pushing me into that first wave on the, the KFC Foamy. Sorry, KFC, another plug. But um, <laughs> they gave foamies away um, back in the 70s. But, yeah, pushing me onto that first wave, one of my, you know, most beautiful and vivid memories. Another one on his back like a little monkey out at D.Y. Point. He was on a surf mat, like a blow-up. a blow Lilo. up um, Lilo. For those that don't know what a surf mat is, D.Y. Point, it was about six foot, it was solid, and he dropped in on about four guys on surfboards all screaming at us with with me on his back, absolutely petrified, but, you know, the the thrill of a life. But, uh, yeah, similar thing. He was was, um, the guy that got me started there and so grateful for that.
1: That is so cool. Yeah, I think I don't. I don't remember calling Dad ever pushing me onto a wave because uh, I learned to surf on the harbour side. I waited for the ferries to come in to learn how to balance on my KFC foamy. Oh, really? And uh, and then when I was about, yep. And then when I was about five years old, it's when I started paddling out on the on the ocean side on my own. So I'm sure he's probably pushed me into a couple of waves, but uh, I just blocked that out because little Miss Independent here just likes to do it all on her own. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I love that. One of the coolest, I'm just going to digress quickly, I just read your book, by the way, Beneath the Waves, and it's beautiful. Thank you. Absolutely loved it, got a lot out of it, discovered a lot of things about you that I I didn't know and was, you know, blown away in a new unit of time about what you've done and what you've achieved. And in particular, the thing I I like the most about it is that you're this kind of rare combination of absolutely fierce competitor I, the tiger, take no prisoners, yet out of the competition, you're a sweetheart, people person, super chatty, likes to help people, really inclusive. It's like I just love that, how you've straddled those two things and, um, yeah, good job, Lane.
1: Thanks. Thanks, Lee. It took me a long time to work out that you can be all of it and that i you know, as a competitor, I, I was a real striver, as you said. I was a real fierce, focused, invested in struggle style of competitor and managed to achieve six consecutive world titles despite all that. Uh, what I wasn't aware of was the cost. It was... You know, it was, um, it was, I mean, it cost my quality of health and well being. And now I'm in constant pain management because my body never was given the time to heal properly. And there's plenty of girls on tour that'll never forgive me or ever want to really hang out with me. Um, yeah, I was, you know, tagged as having the compassion of a tiger shark. So there's elements of my career that I'm not very proud of. Um, yeah. And yet uh, I was able to learn from those lessons and forgive myself for choosing to be that way and then choosing to do it differently. And that was a really big turning point for me. That was a, a real catalyst moment for me to, to learn to trust in being something else and still being able to be successful. And I feel that, you know, we all, we all go down this path and, and if we achieve monumental success, then we believe that that's the only way to do it. And I had to learn that there was another way because it was just unsustainable. Gotcha. Mm.
0: Look, That's cool. I totally understand where you're coming from, but you know what? It's okay to be great, and thank you for being great, and thank you for being a champion. Nice. I love it. I love being
1: a champion. Yeah.
0: it's it's At the end of the day, it's a game. The competition part is a game, and you played the game really, really well, and I know particularly in Australia, you know, you're not meant to say, hey, I'm the greatest and I'm going to be world champion and take that, you know, Muhammad Ali kind of approach. It's so un-Australian, but I admire you for doing it and for having the grit to, <laughs> to to go for it because it's so like in Australia, it's so hard to maintain. If you're in America, you know they really you know put their champions on a pedestal and celebrate them. And not that you, you're not here, but here you know you're constantly like, okay, don't get a big head and come on, you know, chop, pull your head chop, in, chop, yeah, chop chop chop, 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 the tall poppies. <laughs> And, you know, the fact that you were able to maintain it and keep going, I mean, hats off to you. I think it's brilliant and I think even though back in in those uh, through the years of competition, yeah, sure, I'm sure there's plenty of other girls, you know, wanted your scalp and, and, and wanted to win, wanted to, yeah, wanted to win too. But, you know, from having watched you over the years, I think you've been very gracious and I think you've been, when you've lost, I think you've been a great loser. And I think also... Um, what you've done for women surfing, yeah, you were ambitious and you'd like to win and all that, but you did want to bring people with you. You wanted the other women to come with you and you fought for all the women on the tour and, um, you know, it's impressive.
1: Thank you. Yeah, the the mistake that I made, because you're right, and I, I appreciate that you were able to see it the way in which it was intended to be delivered, which was I was on this mission to change the world i still am by building this academy and building a new course that the course called own your truth is literally drawn on the experiences of competing for all my world titles and the lessons that i've learned to shortcut the struggle when i reflect back on that period I had a really grand vision for women's surfing that I, I really wanted to take it to a whole new place, and I wanted it to emulate women's tennis, and I wanted it to stand on its own two feet, and I wanted it to have the value and credibility and and support that it that it deserved. The mistake that I made throughout that process is that I never really clearly communicated that vision to others. Like I just expected them to understand where I was going, and and that seems to be like a a bit of a a pattern in me. Like when I get these grand visions in my mind, I'm like, oh, I see the value in it. Now I've, I've got to stop and take stock and go, okay, this is why we're heading towards this. This is why it's important to me and is it important to you? And if it's not... How can I make it important for you, or then why isn't it important for you, and how can we collaborate? So yeah, I just expected my peers and the industry and the governing body and my male counterparts. I just expected everyone to get it, and they didn't. <laughs> so <laughs> I had that that mentality, that impetuous nature that went, all right, if you don't get it and screw you, I'll go do it. <laughs> I can't yeah. wait for you to make it happen. <laughs>
0: yeah, I guess the <laughs> the liability of being a trailblazer really isn't yeah it? yes um, 100%. yeah. Yeah. Oh, well. Oh, well. Uh, yep. Women <laughs> yep.
1: surfing is prospering today. Oh, um, yeah. And I, I contributed to that, so I'm really proud of that.
0: Oh, you totally did. You, you absolutely did. Let's go back to some of the legends that helped you along the way. Yep. Um One of them is a dear friend of mine, Doug Lees. Oh, yes. To this day, he's one of my best mates. And uh, Doug and Guy Leach, for those that don't know, owned a surf shop at Manly called um, Australian Surfer HQ. Were they your first sponsor?
1: They were my first employer and first sponsor. It became Lane Beachley HQ. <laughs> 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 it's, where I, it's where I stored my board and my skateboard and my bike and just spent all day every day there when I wasn't at school and um, every weekend. And, uh, and yeah, then I started working there, folding T-shirts and sweeping the floors. And um, I think I worked there for about a, a good 18 months before they even decided to start paying me. Uh, and on Sundays, Leachie would come into the shop, you know, the superstar that was Guy Leach, he would come in. I'd have to massage his shoulders and just sit there and I would lie Guy. Yeah, he's become one of my greatest mentors and big brothers and best friends. And uh, between Leachy and Doug, they were the, the true, um, they truly kind of what it mean, or captured to me what it means to have a dream team um and and an honesty barometer you know they really they nurtured me they developed me they elevated me they supported me they pulled my head in when it when it needed pulling in they dusted me off they picked me up and dusted me off when I fell down really hard like they were just and they still are to this day they still are part of my dream team and um developing those relationships is what made me understand the value of having those kind of people in your life because they're few and far between but when you get them hold on to them forever
0: yeah, totally agree. Mm. I don't know Guy as well, but, um, yeah, Doug's just one of those guys that's just, you know, he's got your back. I'm still after all these years discovering things about him that that he's done that he's never told me about, unlike me, who you know, I'm like Mr. PR. He's like <laughs> Mr. Understated and, um, yeah, yeah, fantastic guy.
1: Doug's always listening and watching, you know. He's like the yeah. silent silent observer. He's, he's yeah, uh, yeah he's... You just, you'll pop up and just make comment and the comment can be so, it's almost like a thought bubble comment, but it really has impact and meaning behind it. Yeah. And you're like, oh, okay, you are watching. All right. <laughs> Good to know.
0: <laughs> oh, I love that. My first job was working at Sunshine Surfing at North Stain. No way. With Saxon for about, yeah. probably about two years. I worked there on weekends and um, school holidays. And then I think Saxon ended up selling that shop to Doug and Guy.
1: yeah. I think so.
0: He owned that shop, the one at Manly, as well.
1: Yeah, I just got traded around all the shops. You know, I'd work at Aloha and then up at Sunshine and then <laughs> and, um, wow. back at HQ, and then there was a rollerblade shop in the in the laneway, and then Manly Style, and yeah, I just basically made the rounds around. Yeah, the
0: yeah, St. at Manly Style. He's one yeah. of my best mates to this day as well. He was uh, another sponsor of yours, wasn't he?
1: Yes, St. Larry. I, yep, yeah, he paid for my first custom surfboard, St. Eh? And wow. I put about. 70,000 mainly Style stickers all over it. I <laughs>
0: yeah. uh, love it. And tell me about Lynn and Jodie yep. and Tracy. Um, they had a shop down there as well. They helped and supported you along the way, didn't they?
1: Yeah, so Lynn Holmes was a, um, a significant uh, maternal influence in my life. So the mother who adopted me died when I was six and then my dad um you know, dated for a little bit. I was proud of him for getting back out there and then met this lady called Christina who became my stepmother. We didn't really see eye to eye because I saw her as someone who was going to take my dad away from me. So I was threatened by her. So I moved out of home. And But during those formidable teenage years and early 20s when I felt kind of lost and didn't have that maternal influence, Lynn became that influence in my life. And Jody, her youngest daughter, uh, and I used to surf and compete against and with each other. And we used to have a ball surfing with each other in Manly. But then when it became competitive, that, that I think that kind of drove a wedge between us a little bit. And then Tracy, yeah, she was the the media mogul. Uh, even back then, <laughs> she was... Um, and Tracy loved her surfing, but she always had a great way with words. So they were kind of like my sisters that I, I never got to have. And um, they played, yeah, like I said, they played a significant influence. I remember going to my first event outside of sydney in newcastle um and woke up that morning and dad had gone to work and i was at home going oh i've got to get to newcastle today and i didn't even know how i was going to get there and i the so the first person i i turned to was lynn i you know i packed my bag and i got my board and i went down to her and i went what do i do how do i get to newcastle (laughs) she's like so she advised me to get on the ferry and then the train and then i had warren smith's phone number who's the he was the contest organizer in newcastle and so i rang him when i got there and yeah, wow. yeah. It's just those networks and having those those little um, that little support network to help me navigate my way.
0: That's awesome. Yeah. I went on one date with Tracy.
1: Oh, how'd that go? <laughs> um,
0: it was okay. Is that but, why was only know, one. It was uh, it was yeah it was one date. No, she's a great, she girl. Is a great girl. Um I can't remember too many details, but uh, <laughs> great family. Yeah, Tracy so- and
1: Jody and I travelled through Europe one year together with um, Tracy's. Ex-boyfriend, a guy called Andrew Murphy, who worked for Quicksilver, who unfortunately took his own life a few years later. And um, oh god, it was—I mean, it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of it was chaos. I mean, I remember we were driving from London to Newquay and somehow drove via Stonehenge. I mean, how does that happen? We got so lost, (laughs) we end up in the wrong country. Uh, But anyway, we found our way. So it was, um, yeah, a lot of lot of fun memories and adventures from the early days on tour.
0: Fantastic yeah and I mean it's not like you were cashed up you were doing no you were delivering pizzas you were working here you were working there to you know gather the money to to compete and go on tour weren't you?
1: Yeah and that's why that whole strip of shops down there at Manly which is not really the same but the surf shop's still there but you know from the starting at Australian Surfer HQ and then moving into Lynn's shop next door and then Squid had the men's shop on the corner which I would sometimes mind for him when he needed to go off and go to the bank or he needed a day off and so I'd I managed that shop and then there was the art gallery, then there was a cafe, so I was working in the cafe at times as well. I just became, and then Nigel Russell upstairs had the hairdressing salon, the so I, I did one day up there as kind of like an apprentice and just passionately disliked the whole experience. So, you know, washing people's hair and putting water in their eyes and water in their ears and I was just hopeless at it. So, needless to say, I never pursued a career in hairdressing, so <laughs> I was just... <laughs> I had my heart set, on becoming a world champion surfer and I just did everything I could to support uh, the, fin- the lack of financial income <laughs> that I was generating at the time. I've even still got my ledger, my ledger book, of the amount of money I was earning each hour, each day, each hour, um, and then what I was spending it on. And then I was working as a waitress at K-Snapper Inn and, and then I, as an 18-year-old I started working at the Old Manly Boat Shed. So done the rounds in Mantown. <laughs>
0: i love it absolutely love it well let's get on to um onto the surfing tell me about um rob roland smith who became your trainer and um you know got you into shape
1: yeah mentally physically emotionally rob got me into shape the prince of pain the sandhill warrior rob i was introduced to rob oh gosh it must have been my second year on tour so my first the first year I did the tour, I was kind of like a half year and um, and I became friends with uh, Wendy Botha and and she calls me an absolute pain in the ass because I just kept asking questions. How? Why? What? How? Why? She's like, just piss off. Like you're annoying me. But I just wanted to learn and because I realised that, the, you know, we all heard of the law of proximity is surround yourself with the best people in the world. You become the best person in the world. And so I just surrounded myself with world champions. Barton Lynch, Tom Carroll, Martin Potter, Wendy Botha, Pam Burridge. I just... I just clung to them. I must have turned into a barnacle because I just never let go. And Wendy was so fit and so strong and I said to her, because I I looked at her and I went, well, I am nothing like that so I don't deserve to win. There's no way I can ever compete against someone like her because look at her, She's she's a machine. So I said, how did you get into that shape? And she said, I'll introduce you to Rob. So she introduced me to Rob and Tom and Martin Potter were both training with him at the same time. So we became all training buddies and Rob just became my mentor, my teacher, my trainer, my support, my everything, uh, my coach and, um, and we're still great friends. And he really guided me. He taught me accountability. He taught me about showing up. He taught me about, um, you know, the internal dialogue. He taught me about affirmations and positive talk and, um, he taught me about visualization and preparation, and just yeah, and then doing the work, right? Yeah, like,
0: yeah, yeah. yeah. Far out. Give us an insight into exactly what a, a morning would. Um, well,
1: Sunday mornings were my um, favourite. Right. Sunday mornings, where we had to be, because Sunday mornings were a late start, because Rob was still a school teacher at PE at King's School, and Parramatta. So we used to have to go to his house at five thirty in the morning on weekdays, so we could train and be out of there before seven, which is when he had to have a shower and get to to school. So weekdays were not my favourite, especially in winter because we'd be training at 5.30 in the morning in the pouring rain and six degrees outside and I'd have the flu just fighting, fighting and fighting. But weekends we got to have a late start, so 8am at the Palm Beach Surf Club at the southern end we'd do Indian file sand sprints, soft sand sprints all the way to the northern end. So what that means was, if there was 10 of us, we'd be in a single file, he'd call it single file Indian style, and he'd put someone at the front and the front runner would set the pace and whoever ended up at the back of the line, they would have to sprint past the whole line and then slow down to set the pace. And then, as you know, the numbers just drop back and then you end up being at the back of the line and you just keep doing this leapfrog sprint. So we'd do that all the way to the northern end. On the soft sand
0: that's that's got to be a i don't know a couple of a k or two doesn't yeah, it yeah about
1: one and a half k maybe two k
0: yeah brutal yep. that's
1: just the that wow. was the warm-up wow. then we get to the sand hills and we do 10 20 30 sometimes 40 hills. so it'd either be the full lap around the whole sand hill or sometimes we just go straight up the middle with logs or tires or dragging each other up the hill. Then we'd do the the really short, steep hill on the back end. Um, So we had all these different scenarios and training routines on the hills and in between each set of hills we would do push-ups and sit-ups. So there was a day when we did Indian File Sprints, 40 hills, 1,000 sit-ups and 500 push-ups and then Indian File Sprints back and that was a regular Sunday morning. Didn't make me a better surfer. (laughs) It made me a really tough competitor.
0: (laughs) That sounds like a lot of pain. It
1: was a lot of pain. It was intense. So honestly, though, I'd get to a contest and I'd look at my competitor and if my back was up against the wall or I was losing, I'd look at her and go, you haven't trained as hard as I have. I'm going to fight for this like I fight for my position on those hills. So it made me a tougher competitor. Mental aptitude was my competitive advantage and I didn't always have it. I used to be a very weak competitor. Uh, I used to draw on a lot of comparison and judgment of fear, which stuck, kept me stuck. I used to um, basically have a whole, a whole lot of self-limiting beliefs and go into a self-sabotage mindset before paddling out in certain environments. And doing all of that training shifted my mindset from a fixed mindset to a growth mindset. I saw opportunity. I saw challenge to overcome. I was no longer defined by what was going on outside me. I was defined what was going on in here. And that's what gave me my advantage. And that's what it really propelled me to believe that I could become not only the best surfer in the world, but the best of the best. Wow. Yeah.
0: That's cool. Go, Rob. What Go a Rob. legend. Good on you, Rob.
1: Yeah. I remember chasing him up the sand dunes because he always just wore his sluggos and sometimes he wore a singlet. And on, <laughs> on the singlet, on the back of the singlet, the front had Sandhill Warrior and on the back of the singlet had A to F in the alphabet A, B, C, D, E, F. And it was vitamins for victory, he would referred to it as. And vitamin A was attitude, vitamin B was belief, vitamin C was commitment, vitamin D was discipline, vitamin E was enthusiasm, and vitamin F was fun.
0: Fun. That's cool. It must have been pretty magic also training with, you know, Tom Carroll, world I, champ.
1: He was brutal. He,
0: Martin it, Potter, world champ. Brutal. Um, what were those guys like and did they... Um, I guess, you know, they wouldn't have gone easy on you either, would they?
1: No, they were hard on me. They were brutal. Tom, Tom, he's like this effervescent energizer bunny. He's like the full mangrom, just just never really grows up. And when I was training with him in the backyard, because Rob had a gym in a sandpit in his backyard, designed off what he saw at Venice Beach, and it was Muscle Beach, but it was in Newport in Sydney's Northern Beaches. And when we trained there, um, Rob... And Tom kind of took it upon themselves to really push me. And that's where we I got an understanding of of simulating heats, not through surfing, but through physical exercise and and you know running against the clock and and rising to the pressure of the of the situation. But on the sand hills, Tom was brutal because I'd be running up the hills and in my mind I'm thinking, oh my God, I am done, I'm spent, I'm exhausted. And then I'd hear Tom in the background going, "I'm coming after you, LB. I'm coming to get you, LB. What do you reckon, LB? I'm coming after you, LB." I'm like, "No!" <laughs> and then want time to get me, <laughs> those massive quads of his just chasing me down, going up the hills. But it was the impetus that I needed to snap out of the negative thinking that I'd gone into. They just knew they could read me. I was an open book. They could read when I was going into self sabotage mode. They're like, "All right, LB, let's do this." So they were really um, They were great days. You know, I reflect on them and go, I I never want to do that again. I have no desire to ever run another sandhill in my life. But I'm really grateful for the friendships and the support and the challenge that they continue to inspire me with. That's beautiful.
0: It's all about preparation, really, in in any activity, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, even with this podcast, you know, it's all in the preparation. I read your book. I've got plenty of material to draw on. It makes this easy and we're just having a conversation, isn't it, And with what you were doing. You did all the preparation then you could go out and actually have fun competing, couldn't you? Because you knew you'd would you done everything if you only, could.
1: If it was only that easy, Lee. So, yes, I'd done all the preparation, but then I'd go into the water and, and then compound that with unrealistic expectations of how I was supposed to perform. So I eliminated the fun with struggle. I was more invested in the struggle than fun. It had to be a struggle to be yeah. worth it. So I struggled on the sandhills, yeah. I struggled in the gym, I struggled in the boxing ring, I struggled at training and then I'd struggle in competition. And I don't know, did you watch Arntz Brush With Fame, my episode with Arntz Brush I With did. Fame? And, and I, I said, did. I believe that if you make it look like a struggle, people will always support you.
0: Well, there's a lot of truth in that in Australia. Yes. Because... So that's, that's why
1: I'd become invested in it.
0: Yeah. No, I can totally see how... Um, how that could mm, happen yeah yeah completely and then i guess then you've got the trouble of like okay i've i've mocked up this struggle just so i can get the support but i don't want to then get stuck in it i'm actually just this is me just putting it there yeah. but i don't want that to become my life yeah,
1: it became my life right yeah and, right. and it became a self-fulfilling prophecy over time but i was able to snap out of it eventually so, you do. You know, I, I looked at what In Excess went through, you know, dealing with Kirk, listening to Kirk's stories and watching how the media and the, and especially the music world in here in Australia treated In Excess when they were the biggest band in the world. Yeah. And their intentions were always wholesome. And they always just wanted to, to make a difference, but the way they were cut down and shut down and ridiculed and shut out from the the media and the, and other music industry People and personnel and and other um, acts. Just it was heartbreaking because it was never what their intentions were, and so it kind of it dispelled this belief that they were in it for their own their own benefit. And unfortunately, I feel like a lot of people within the surfing world have that same belief of me. But it was never it was never the case. But that also comes back to one of what I said originally is that I wasn't able to clearly articulate or communicate that message. So, therefore, how are they supposed to understand that? And I didn't mm. understand it myself. I didn't understand what was driving me. I didn't know I had a fear of rejection. I didn't know that I decided as an eight-year-old that because I'd been told I was adopted, I had to prove to the world that I was deserving of love, and the only way I could achieve that was become the best of surfer in the world. I didn't know that until I got there. I went, oh, no. <laughs> oh, well, valuable lesson learned. Time to move on. <laughs> Let it go. Took a while, but I got there in the end.
0: Yeah, yeah, you did. Mm. Look, I think... Obviously, the surfing community is a small world and, yeah, there might be some disgruntled people in there, but I'd say not just to, you know, give you praise, but I'd say out there in Australia you're widely admired and respected and I had a great message. I posted a photo of the cover of your book yesterday on social media and just said, you know, getting ready for my chat with with Lane this morning and somebody posted something really cool and said, oh, yeah, I was crew working on the um biopic Oh um, yes. What whatever that was called. You know, it was the, the mini series about in Excess.
1: Yeah, never tear us apart, I think it was.
0: Never called. Never Tear Us Apart. Yeah. And she said, I remember the day Kirk came and some of the in Excess members were on set and people and crew were like, Oh yeah, good day, you know, nice to meet you or whatever and then Lane walked on, every crew member dropped their tools, stood up and gave you a standing ovation.
1: Oh, <laughs> <Aww, laughs> So beautiful. Yeah. Yes. That's the the lesson there, right, Lee? So, you know, I talk about being invested in struggle and pain and suffering and then you experience this overwhelming outpouring of love and adoration and respect and it's actually about me now opening my heart to it and allowing it in because I'd shut myself off from it. No, can't see it. No, can't feel it. It'll soften me. It'll weaken me. It'll prevent me from being that, that competitor I need to be. And yeah. so I'm still learning how to do that. I'm still learning how to let it all in and just go, wow, thank you. Like, yeah, <laughs> that's really kind. I don't seek it, but I've yeah. also got to learn to open myself up to it.
0: Yeah, well, don't invalidate yourself.
1: Yeah, exactly. Value myself.
0: What you've done is extraordinary. You've, in- yeah. you've inspired a whole country, in fact, a whole generation of women and men around the world and... Um, totally push the boundaries. It's precious.
1: It is. Yeah. And uh, you're not always going to be liked and that's okay too. Can't please everybody. But I do validate myself. And quite honestly, if I'm having a self-pity party for one, we have a trophy room downstairs with in excess and surfing memorabilia. It's all our own. It's not the castle. It's our memorabilia. <laughs> There's no jousting sticks. And we just, I just walk in there and go, wow, I've had a pretty remarkable career and I'm still living a really remarkable life. So not too much to complain about.
0: Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Let's go on to Ken Bradshaw and um,
1: and, and Hawaii. To infinity and beyond.
0: (laughs) Is that what he used to say?
1: Well, yeah, he was Buzz Lightyear. I mean, look at him. He looks exactly like him. He's got the big chiseled jaw and the big... Chessie a cat smile and he's got this impressive wingspan and he can fly around the room with his eyes closed. But Ken and I were Toy Story fans too. We would literally just watch that show all the time. (laughs) We loved it. And um, Ken was larger than life. He was a very big figure, very influential figure in my life, introduced me to toe-in surfing, helped me fall in love with big wave surfing, even though I already loved it, but helped me really um, find my place within that very testosterone-filled environment and world taught me um, how to really focus my attention and um, brought the best out of me for quite some time. You know, we were a formidable duo and an unbeatable team. You know, with his support um, and commitment and coaching and mentoring and love, I won five consecutive world titles. So I'm really grateful for the relationship that we shared and the support that, we had, that he had for me. And, yeah, he just he really invested himself into helping me achieve my dreams and my goals. He's a good man. Really
0: cool. Yeah. So, for those that don't know, he's an American moved Texan. to who? Ha- oh, I Texan. Yeah. There you go. Well, oh, he's still wow.
1: American, but yeah, Texan. Yeah.
0: yeah. <laughs> no, they're kind of different in yeah, Texas. You're right. Um, moved to Hawaii, became a kind of iconic figure in Hawaii, particularly one of the pioneers in the big wave surfing and tow-in surfing, and yeah, with with his support, I think in 2000, you had ridden the biggest wave for a woman in, in history at that point or something? Did he tow you into that wave?
1: No, he didn't. He was away that weekend. The swell popped up. And I'd been working for about 18 months in developing my toe in capacity and skills. So I'd been working with him and his toe partner, Dan. And when Dan saw the swell come up, he was like, well, I need a towing partner. And the thing about tow in surfing is that you're towed in by a jet ski. So you have to be as a competent jet ski driver as you are a surfer because you're responsible for each other's life in the event that anything goes wrong. So you don't just pick off someone off the beach and go, hey, come and tow me into 50-foot waves. You've got to have a really good dynamic relationship. You've got to build that trust. You've got to have the know-how and the knowledge Um That in the event things go wrong, that you'll trust that they will know how to come and save you and and protect your life. So, riding fifty foot waves isn't something I just woke up the next day and went, oh, it's fifty foot, let's go, let's do this. You know, I'd been, I had developed the skill, and Dan woke up that morning and said, oh no, he rang me the night before and said it's going to be big tomorrow. Do you want to tow? And I'm like, yeah, you know, sign me up. And then Ken got on the, he was in Florida, I think, and he got on the phone that morning and he was basically trying to tell me that I wasn't ready and don't go, you can't do it. And I was like, what? You're breaking up, can't he, buy?" And hung up on him and jumped on the back of the jet ski and went out to sea with Dan and, yeah, rode two of the biggest waves of my life. And um, and it's a really powerful story and I, I share it in my book and I share it on stage when I do inspirational keynote speaking because uh, it truly... It truly kind of captures or encapsulates what fear can do to you and how you need to manage the fear and mitigate the fear and mitigate the risk through the preparation and then also the internal dialogue and understanding that you you might be saying one thing and you want you you know you're thinking one thing but you're believing another but we manifest what we believe so the only way we can change our beliefs is actually by tuning into what we believe to be true and uh, that's a whole other story but when I got out there it was. It was scary as hell, and I will accept the fact that, yes, I'm afraid, but what can I control today to achieve the outcome? And the outcome is survive and ride a wave. And I got to marry two of them. And, um, yeah, Ken, I think he was pissed off that it wasn't him that was right- towing me into the biggest waves of my life. But uh, it was full of adrenaline, full of fear and full of excitement, and that's, um, yeah, I'm, I'm really grateful that I, that I conquered my own fears and went out there and, and faced Mother Nature because she can be pretty unpredictable.
0: That completely blows my mind because I've surfed um, most of the breaks on the North Shore. I've surfed, you know, Sunset, Land, off the wall, pipeline, gas chambers. The whole stretch. You know, that whole, you know, rough stretch mm. of, of breaks. And about the biggest I've surfed it is uh, Sunset at about eight foot, yep. Hawaiian eight foot, and that is <laughs> petrifying. It is the, it's a seriously scary break. I mean, I had, I had a ball but um eight foot Hawaiian size is scary. You said fifty So foot. it was
1: thirty they we're calling it thirty foot Hawaiian, which has a fifty foot face. 50 thirty foot
0: Hawaiian, okay. So that's about for people who don't know, they kind of count the wave size from the back of the wave more in Hawaii rather than mm-hmm. in California. Yeah. It rides the back of the wave. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So the face of the wave, odd fifty foot. But just to put it in perspective, these are like on outer reefs, so it's not the the regular photos you see of these places breaking. It's like so big, it's way out the back. It's just, I mean, you know, the <laughs> yeah, ground is shaking um, as, as you're walking down yep. the beach kind of vibe. Um, so, I mean, I could talk for an hour just about that one surf, so I'm going to spare the, the, the audience here that. But tell me what's the worst, uh, clearly it wasn't that day, but what's, what's the worst wipeout? I've had several near-death experiences in a lifetime of surfing, Tell me about one of yours and how you made it through that and how it didn't sort of stop you from ever putting yourself in that kind of. Have you ever come close again. to
1: drowning? What, do you remember yeah. what the experience was like? Yeah,
0: well, I mean, funnily enough, it was that struggle and panic. And then you break through to this other side of like, oh, well, fucking, that's it. <laughs> oh, excuse the French. Um, and there's a, a sort of peace. Just on that other side, where you just go ragdoll and you're just like, okay, I can't get to the surface and I'll just go with it. And then, you know, you're seeing stars and then the next minute. Yeah. And it's that
1: surrender that's the most important part of that whole equation. Because with Mother Nature, Mm. the ocean is so powerful and she's so much more powerful and unpredictable than you are that if you learn to surrender, she will nurture you and comfort you. So (laughs) that's (laughs) what I've learned. (laughs) <laughs> oh, my God, I'm going to cry. <laughs> That's what I, I've experienced. So the times when I've come close to drowning is like you. I've, I've surrendered. I've found that peace. And then all of a sudden she comes up underneath you and elevates you back to the surface. And it's like, no, it's not your time yet. And so I've had plenty of times like that. And I've just surrendered and go, oh, okay, it's quite peaceful down here. I really like the silence. But, and then all of a sudden you get pushed back to the surface. I've had two, two wave hold downs at sunset for 45 seconds. I've had waves, you know, 20-foot high land on the small of my lower back and fold me in half. I've had waves in Tahiti smash me on the reef. I've had extreme amount of injuries but I've never had a time where I've thought I'm never going back in the water. I've never had a Greg Knoll moment where I've thought this was too close for comfort. I, I find too much comfort in the discomfort. (laughs) so I'm addicted to being in nature because it's so comfortable it's so nurturing it's like for me it's going back into the womb it really is I'm just held and nurtured and free every moment I I enter the water and I could never imagine walking away from that irrespective of how close it can I come to losing my life in that environment and that's a real selfish mindset but it's just who I am and what makes me tick and what gets me up in the morning. That's cool. Thanks yeah, for yeah, well, sharing. going to make you cry. And,
0: and yeah. I'm,
1: yeah. <laughs> you almost made me cry. It's a, uh,
0: it's a, yeah, it's a similar thing for me. Just nothing can stop me um, yeah. going back for more. What The last one of those moments I had was just a couple of years ago, funnily enough, at Bell's, which, you know, seems so pretty and sort of so um full and lightweight but i've had a couple of you know like really scary moments out there what that last one did to me was i realized okay i'm getting older i'm actually not that fit i'm not fit enough to go out here when it's 10 foot and there's only one other guy out and it's midweek and it's howling offshore um and on that occasion my board snapped and hit me in the what? neck and cut my neck. And then, and the wind was so offshore, it was just blowing me out to sea, and it was just set after set after set, and I just wasn't getting washed in. And I'm just going, I've got blood, and I've got, ah. Anyway, I went in, nearly didn't make it, got in, and went, oh God, okay, I'm going to actually have to get really fit. So I've got a whole lot fitter, and I started watching what I was eating, and that's, I kind of thought, okay. If I want to keep surfing, I've got to get a lot fitter. So it was a good wake up call for me. But no, it didn't stop. No, me.
1: that's that's really healthy wake up call though. A really great lesson. Yeah, I had one. I had a, um, a near drowning experience in Fiji in 2019, so just last year. And uh, I was out at restaurants. it wasn't a big day, but I just got held 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 down by a really rogue big set, and I was under for a long time, and my board was tombstoning for a long time, and it was two days after I received knowledge that my the author of my book had died. Uh, Michael Gordon, oh, wow. and um, an image of him came up in my mind. And when that appeared, I literally said to myself underwater, I'm not ready to meet you yet. Like I'm not ready to hang out again. And wow. so then I just thought, okay, this is the impetus for me to, to look for a way out of here. Uh, and managed to get my, myself back to the surface. Unfortunately, one wow. of my girlfriends was surfing with me and she knows that she needs to stay calm when I'm under duress. And yeah. I came up and she looked at me and she goes, well, you're under there for quite some time. <laughs> and I wow. went, well, this is what happened.
0: <gasps> wow. I've yeah. surfed restaurants. That's that's one of my favourite breaks on the planet. Me too. Unbelievable, isn't it? Just this yeah. perfect mechanical left right out the front of the <laughs> restaurant. <laughs>
1: At like, Tavarua, it's how, amazing. How,
0: how good does it get?
1: Not much better.
0: Not much better. Wow. Mm.
1: Um, no, I'm just it, thinking it was 2018, not 2019.
0: 2018.
1: Yeah. Wow. Yeah.
0: That, um, funnily enough, talking at Tavarua, I was at a trip there with Doug, Doug Lee's. Um, mm. That trip where it was huge. Cloud break oh. was was 25 foot perfect, and the Hawaiian lifeguards were surfing at Doug on, I think, on the first day went out there and paddled in and had his near death experience. Have you heard about that? No. Where he managed to get towed out. Ask him about it. He nearly drowned oh, yeah. out there. Yeah, it was it was um uh, it was massive. We were surfing restaurants out the front, but Doug went out first day and um tried to paddle into a monster. They ended up um what was that little goofy footer? Um Mark Haley? Yeah, yeah, exactly. He was there. He went and <laughs> picked up I think it was him that picked up uh Duggan saved him anyway. Came in, nearly broke his hand, and you know limped back to the island. Going, I'm not going out there again.
1: Pale <laughs> <I'll> between <doing laughs> his legs for,
0: for a couple of, couple of days. Anyway,
1: oh, dear. Um,
0: talking about surfers, Kelly Slater. You know how many world titles? Eleven or eleven or something.
1: I'm such an underachiever.
0: So you were winning your world titles through the, I guess, the main era. He was winning his mm. another. Um, you know, phenomenal athlete and a great role model and seems like a thoroughly decent guy. That must be pretty cool having that interaction with him and you guys doing that together. Can you share any story about Kelly?
1: Oh, tough one with Kelly because at the majority of the time he keeps his distance. Um, he's very particular about who he lets in and when he lets them in and how he lets them in. So Kelly and I have had our dance. It's kind of like a brother and sister relationship. Um, I have... Nothing but admiration and respect for Kelly. I mean, he's an extraordinary athlete, one of the greatest athletes in the world, irrespective of what sport he's playing. Um, yeah. the, the ability to continue evolving the way he's evolved in a sport that's really for a young man, uh, to continue to set the standards and, and stay at the top of the game and push these young kids to do things that um, are usually just resigned to young people. <laughs> I'm talking like an old bag now, aren't I? <laughs> um, But, uh, yeah, Kelly, you know, he, he's been a good inspiration. He's been a great role model. He's um, he's had his challenges, but he's, I don't know, there's been times when Kelly's been really supportive and then times when Kelly's been kind of challenging. <laughs> yep. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I've had a lot of a lot of experience, a lot of stories, a lot of moments with him that I treasure I mean I I literally sat down with him after when I was competing for my sixth consecutive world title and I lost my mojo and lost my sense of focus and direction and and I sat down with him and asked him for advice and he was very gracious and um, generous in giving me advice and he's very intelligent Kelly you know he's you're never underestimating him he's quite cunning um, but he's very smart very switched on very observant He's done a lot of his own emotional work as well. We all make mistakes and he's made his fair share of them and um, and he still carries the weight of the world on his own shoulders as well. But, he, I mean, I honestly believe he's single-handedly responsible for where we're surfing, professional surfing is today. He was a superstar and it was really difficult for him to be able to understand how to navigate his way through that. He was literally thrown into a, a pack of great whites for many years and just had to learn how to survive that. You know? Yeah, and he
0: was a kid when he first arrived. He, right? was, he was a an kid. an absolute prodigy.
1: Yeah, 100%. And just how he was able to negotiate that, it, well, he did it to the best of his ability, but no one can prepare you for that. So he's just done his best to navigate his way through it and um, he's made his fair share of mistakes and he owns his shit and, gets on with it and then he's obviously still loving his surfing and still surfing amazingly well. I mean, I remember paddling out at, at cloud break and just watching this guy go upside down with like this innate sense, totally innate sense of where he is. It's almost like he looked like he was riding the wave with his eyes closed. He just has this innate sense of where he is positioned on every wave and he puts his board so critically and so tight into positions where I just go, how does he do that? Like he goes upside down and just falls out of the sky and just, it just looks effortless and free and I just go, oh. He's just amazing.
0: <laughs> yeah, he's, yeah, he's like a cat. isn't He, he? is a cat,
1: cat, always lands on his feet.
0: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I read his book years ago and uh, I remember a passage where he talks about creating waves when he needs them. Yeah. You know, that feeling of in competition, three minutes to go, he's behind, needs a wave, it's flat, suddenly a wave comes to Kelly and he wins yeah. the heat. Um I loved how he described that of how he manifests waves and is kind of, I guess you could say, cause over the physical universe and mocks up this thing that he needs at that time. It's very, very cool, very inspiring. and clearly- didn't teach
1: me that. He <laughs> did yeah. not. You know who, Dave, you know, I know who he gave that skill to, Stephanie Gilmore. That's <laughs> who he shared that with. He <laughs> <It> was <laughs> holding it out for her. Okay. Thank you for sharing that.
0: <laughs> Classic.
1: Oh, wow.
0: Um, tell me about your foundation for the stars we're going to get to the awake academy in a minute which is your latest baby but yep. just tell me uh, i want sort of people to know the fantastic work you did over the years with your foundation and how you helped a lot of people with that
1: no well, thank you yeah aim for the stars was a, a passion project that that uh was focusing on supporting and and elevating young girls and women so i reflected on my career and thought man the disparity and level of Oh, just pain that that women surfing endured. I just thought, I want to make it better. I want to make it easier for young women to succeed in life, not just in sport, but in in life. And so I created a foundation called Aim for the Stars, which provided financial and moral support for young girls to achieve their dreams, music, science, culture, sports, academia, environmental, legal, you name it, we supported it. And so for 15 years, we gave around about a million dollars in grants to almost 500 young girls and women. So it basically they were micro-grants, you know, like $1,500 or $3,000 grants, and these things were life-changing for these women because they're not only receiving the financial support but they got the personal mentoring and recognition and belief from me, and that tended to be the life shift that they required at the time. So it was a very rewarding uh, opportunity to give back to a community, and the, the premise of it or the ethos of it came from... Remembering a time when I was earning $8,000 a year, working 60 hours a week in four different jobs, and I was rated number two in the world. And I still didn't have what I needed to achieve my goal of becoming a world champion. And one of my employers at the Old manly Boat Shed basically said, I see you, I hear you, I believe in you. Here's three grand, here's your next round the world air ticket. Go for it, do it. And two years later, I did. And if it wasn't for his $3,000, I probably would have quit by then because it was the third time I was ready to quit. So. Yeah, that's why I started the foundation. Unfortunately, after 15 years, it just got too hard. The news doesn't like good news stories. It, got a, it just became a bit of a difficult sell. And quite honestly, it, it had achieved more than I ever expected. And I stopped experiencing that satisfaction, that deep reward that I had for 15 years. So it was time to just walk away and invest my energy into doing something more impactful and more meaningful, which is the Awake Academy work that I've been doing.
0: Beautiful. Tell us about that.
1: So, yeah, Awake Academy, once again, was. it was about reflection. It was about looking at my current lifestyle and going, how sustainable is the way I'm living? So I was doing between 45 to 60 talks a year. I was travelling around the world. I was spending around 120 to 180 days on the road and Uh, as I was getting older and older, I was realizing this isn't sustainable. Like I'm loving what I do. I love the fact that I get paid to stand on stage and share my stories and educate people and shortcut their struggle. But I also feel like I'm vomiting on them and then walking out and I'm, I'm leaving them hanging. There's not enough follow-up. I'm not giving them enough tools to actually take control of their lives And, yes, I'm sharing inspiration and I want them to change. I want to challenge the way that I think so potentially they do something a little differently when they walk out of the room having listened to me. But I want to be able to deepen that impact and broaden that impact and make it a more enriching experience. So a girlfriend of mine said, okay, let's, who's now become my business partner, let's have a snapshot of what you're currently doing and then let's look at what you can possibly do uh, to, you know, shortcut that struggle. Yeah. And she said, what's your why? Now, you've probably read Simon Sinek's book, Start With Why. No. Simon Sinek, look up his YouTube clips. He's okay. phenomenal speak, but he was the one that created the golden circle. So okay. we often start with when we create a vision for ourselves, we often start with the outcome in mind yep. and then we think about, all right, so how am I going to do it and then why am I doing it? But he actually turned that on its head and said, actually, if we start with our why in mind, then that will easily create the process and then that process will take care of the outcome. People don't buy what you do, they buy why you do it. If you're really clear on why you get up in the morning, that will fuel your motivation and your discipline and your empathy and understanding and then will make you a more fulfilled and focused human being, whereas the opposite of that is fear. So starting with why, I identified my why, and awakening people awakens me. Fortunately, I had some one-on-one mentoring experience and I had some really Great success in that world. I thought I really love working with people, but I want to do more than one-on-one mentoring and motivational speaking. So I created an academy called Awake Academy, which is to help people detach from fear and bring back the fun and find their flow. Like let's take control of our lives. And the first course is called Own Your Truth. And that's a seven-round online no bullshit course to unlock your internal GPS. The premise of the course is to help people wake up, own their shit, and trust in love. Let's detach from fear, bring back the fun, and find out flow. And that's what this academy is all about. And the course, if I could Beautiful. explain to you a little bit more. Yep.
0: Yeah, go for it.
1: It's seven rounds. Yep. Which No
0: bullshit. I got that bit.
1: Seven rounds of no bullshit, but it's seven rounds to obviously correlate with my seven world titles. And also today, girls have to surf through seven rounds to win an event. And of course, when you complete the course, you get a trophy because who doesn't love a trophy? <laughs> there's, and then organically, it, it became 29 exercises in the workbook, which I have here, of course, because I've been working through it myself. <laughs> and the 29 exercises actually correlate with the fact that I, was, I won 29 tour events. Yep.
0: Beautiful. And then,
1: there's, and then there's 19 videos, which goes with the 19 years I was on tour. And so wow. it's all about. There's three chapters. It's about awareness of your feelings and your triggers and your stories and your judgments. Then alignment with who you truly are, and then your dream team, and then awakening of your energy and your spirit and your ability to fulfil your your potential and live your best life.
0: Sounds awesome. I'm pretty excited. Good tonight. for you. Yeah, good for <laughs> you. That's great. Wow. Well, look, I love the fact that you, you're going to give people things to do. It's about actually doing it. It's not just, oh, here's a few words of wisdom. Yeah. If people don't, you know, make it their own and go out and do something with it, then, you know, it's limited, isn't it? Yeah. So that sounds, sounds very cool. Tell me, you're a busy girl. You're also the chairwoman of Surfing Australia. Like, what's involved with that? And you're juggling lots of hats. How much time is involved with that? And I just personally love the idea of you after because all of those years on tour it would have been all men and you were like this chick turning up trying to fight for women's <laughs> rights and all the rest of it and they'd just be like oh yeah. you know Lane shut yes, up oh, just you know injured. what I mean don't don't you don't you need to go and buy a new bikini <laughs> or something He here you are now you're the chairwoman and you're probably at the head of the table running these meetings and you know yeah. setting these things in motion I just love that Thanks. And I'd like to be a fly on a wall in one of those oh, meetings. Oh, it's a
1: lot of fun. I do like to bring fun to board meetings because life's too serious as it is. So yes, we're, you know, we're running a, a not for profit organization that's governing the the pathways from the from the beach to the podium for future champions and, and engaging people in surfing through digital platforms and and creating participation programs to get more people engaged in the sport of surfing. Yes, I'm the chair of that board and I don't know how that happened. <laughs> I was, you know, I started out as the token female on the board and then all of a sudden I've become the chair. Um, but it's a really rewarding process. It literally, it does take up a lot of time, but it, it, it requires as much time as I want to give it. And it's a really valuable role because I'm learning so much about governance and strategy and business and people and management and all those things that come with running an organisation, but without the risk of actually having to run it myself. And uh, we've, had a, we've had our, old, our previous CEO, um, Andrew Stark. He moved on back to he moved to the WSL and we brought a brought on a new guy called Chris Smarter who had 16 years in North America at Red Bull but he's an Aussie guy from the Northern Beaches and it's been a really interesting and, and rewarding experience working with him and um, helping him find his way and and um, and yeah just oh God I've learned so much from the role I'm really loving it but my tenure runs out in a couple of years and so all I want to do within the next couple of years is make sure that the Olympic Games occurs so I can go there because I really wanted an Olympic medal for surfing it feels like it's the only thing missing from my trophy cabinet my trophy room and I just want to be there because I've invested my heart and soul into women's surfing you know from being a professional surfer to now being the chair of the board and investing all that energy and time into developing the high performance program and and uh, mentoring our athletes to then go and compete at Tokyo that would be like the the full circle of completion for me and then I can step away from it and go okay someone else can take on from here so yeah it's it's a lot of fun I do love it
0: that's a that's a cool goal yeah I love to quote from rabbit Bartholomew in the book that said Lane is fearless in the boardroom
1: mmm. I was because when he was president of the ASP, I was the token female on the board and yeah, I had to be fearless because they were a bunch of bastards. They, they had very little respect or regard for women surfing and I just come up, I came up against it day after day after day. Very different environment there today.
0: Totally. Yeah. Well, that's a good point to wrap it up. Lane Beachley, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and your stories. It's been an absolute treat for me and thank
1: you. Thanks, Lee. Thank you for the opportunity and I trust your listeners' uh, ears aren't bleeding. (laughs) It was lots of fun. Thank you.
0: I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. Quite simply, Lane Beachley makes me proud to be an Aussie. To find out more about Awake Academy, go to awakeacademy.com.au or head to lanebeachley.com, her own website. You can find the link in the show notes as well. I'd also like to give a shout out to Doug Lees. He's the bloke we mentioned who was Lane's first sponsor and owned the surf shop Manly who employed and supported Lane over many years. Doug is now the CEO of Surfaid. They're a non-profit humanitarian organisation who helps to improve the health, well-being and self-reliance of people living in isolated regions connected to us through surfing. As you probably know, surfers love to travel and explore remote regions and places where great waves can be found. Surfaid helps to give back to these communities who are often in need of things we take for granted here in Australia. So go to their website, surfaid.org. Check them out, and even better, see how you can support them. Next week's guest is Tony Ayres. You may not know his name, but you'll certainly know his work. The Slap, Wanted, Glitch, Nowhere Boys, The Family Law, The Home Song Stories, just to name a few. And the current hit, Stateless, with Kate Blanchett. Tony's definitely one of Australia's most prolific writers and producers and directors, and one of the nicest guys in the biz. Don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, etc. so you don't miss an episode. Have a great week and live large. The Blank Canvas is produced by Lee Rogers and me, Rin MacDonald, with audio support by Jason Murphy at Gas Inc. and music by Rodrigo Bustos. This has been a Milovich production.